Hello, you're listening to Thoughts and Feels, the podcast that brings academic scholarship to bear on popular culture and everyday experience. In each episode, I sit down with a scholar to talk about what interests them in order to discover its connections to the world around us. I'm your host, Tim Weatherspoon. Money facilitates trade of goods and services and powers the global economy in many ways, ranging from a child's lunch money to the world of international finance. Most discussions of money focus on the study of it from a rational standpoint, using the study of economics and statistics to decipher the relationship between currency and value and to predict future trends. Despite its connection to economics and rationality, Money operates as an abstract concept, its value arising from trust and belief in its exchangeability. However, we seldom stop to ask what money is and what gives it its power. This week features Professor Gray Kotcher Lindgren, Director of the Common Core Curriculum at the University of Hong Kong. Gray has recently published a scholarly article entitled Transrational Cash, Ghost Money, Hong Kong, and Nonmodern Networks in which he uses a concept of ghost money to explore how traditional and modern practices are connected through the concept of non-modern networks. By looking at money this way, we can explore the translations between money to ethics, morality, emotion, and status. We also can explore how money is legitimized against its ephemeral value. So great, thanks so much for being on the show. Pleasure to be here, Tim. Very much looking forward to talking about money and magic and mystery and all these related things. All right. I'm looking forward to it as well. So today we want to talk about money and its transrational nature. So, Gray, I was wondering, can you tell me what it means for something to be transrational? Well, what I was thinking of with that one piece on ghost money is that economics usually bases itself on a presumed theory of rationality. And there's a great deal of mathematics that goes into econometrics and running the economy. So since I was writing about the other side of the living, that is money that goes toward the dead, I I needed to come up with a term that indicated that movement. So the trans is always a term of of moving across boundaries. And so this was just the way that I tried to say this movement across typical rationality, although there's still an order there, and trying to get a sense of that mysteriousness of money. Right, that mystery of money. So uh, when I read the paper about ghost money, I was really struck by how you contrast the sort of econometric side of money, where money is something that's really accessible to rational thinking and to mathematical analysis. But you contrast that to say that money is actually much more, let's say, magical than that. Is that part of the point you were driving at? Yeah, that's a good description of it. I think even though we often assume that money only exists in the sphere of the rational, uh, there's always a magical element to it. There always has been. There sort of has to be because it's something like a collective hallucination where we've all agreed to treat these objects and these numbers as means of exchange. Beyond that, there's nothing grounding the action of money uh, in what we might call the real. So it's that idea of the transrational and the magical and the kind of mysteriousness that we deal with every day, but we usually don't think about it. 
All right. And that's what I'd really like to talk more about today. So let's first talk about ghost money, because I think this is a really interesting way to get into this concept. Uh, not all of my listeners are from Hong Kong. They may not be familiar. Do you want to share a little anecdote about your experience with ghost money? Yeah, sure. So in Hong Kong, you have these headquarters of major banks and the district called Central. And then in another district next to Central, Shenguan, you have all sorts of shops selling paper goods that you burn to send to your ancestors. Right. And those can, those can be cars or houses or clothes, but it can also be money, mm-hmm. uh, often called ghost money or hell money, which is just in the shape of bills. And it looks very much like a normal bill. But they're often in gigantic sums and they have they're validated by the emperor of hell. So there's a whole different system of legitimation at work. What interests me is the way that in Hong Kong, the center of high finance, right next to that is this much older traditional notion of the proximity of the living and the dead that money can connect. Yeah, that's very interesting. Definitely a typical walk from any side, anywhere in Western District to Central will take you past the Manmo Temple there on Hollywood Road. Right. And every day you will see people communing with their ancestors through burning ghost money or other paper goods. Right. And even in front of many, many shops are these little tiny altars, which is not quite the same thing. But there's a real sense that the the modernity, the hyper-modernity of Hong Kong coexists with this other organization of people's emotional uh, and social life, I think. And that sort of lines up with the way money operates as both an intellectual concept and an affective entity and something that has to move to be money. It's not money if it sits still. It has to move to generate value. And so for me, that's related to the way that paper goods and the burning of ghost money crossed these boundaries, which is part of why I'm interested in Bruno Latour's work on non-modern networks that connect these different apparently contradictory systems uh, of money, ghost money and what we can call normalized money, but it never really is. Actually, uh, I would like you to highlight more (laughs) what is meant by that concept of non-modern network. So this is a term that comes from the anthropologist and sociologist Bruno Latour, and he's trying to get beyond the the dichotomies that we normally operate in. Sure. For instance, when modernism gets started in about the 17th or 18th century in different ways, it will treat its other as primitive or savage or superstitious. That's right. And that's like ghost money. Oh, what a stupid habit that is. So that's that's the point of view of a certain type of modernity that wants to do what Latour calls purify things. But his point, and, and where I agree, is that it's not modern versus primitive. It's just different sets of relational networks. So it allows us to think about ghost money and burning of paper goods in a different sense than simply dismissing it. So basically, it dismisses that dichotomy. Right. And highlights the way in which these networks are interrelated. So it shines a light at the modern value of ghost money and of the superstitious nature of normalized money. 
Yeah, so each of those values is active on both sides. And the same people that go to HSBC or the Bank of China will also be going to Manmo Temple. Not always, but there's a lot of crossover. Cool. So you've written here the value of value and exchangeability. So I think the word value has two valences, okay, if not more. One is price. And so what is something valued at? It's a dollar twenty-five or a million dollars or something. So there's a number associated with value. Okay. But value also belongs to the language of ethics. Right. And so what are our values? And I think this is an interesting tension. And I said exchangeability because, again, you can't have money unless it's exchangeable. Right. It's just a dead object until it gets exchanged. That's right. And the same is true with ethics and the way that we're all trying to figure out how to relate to each other is there's constant exchanging of positions going on. So I, I think money is an interesting symbol of other realms of human and human otherness relationships. So I'm trying to get at what exactly you mean. So one thing I'm thinking of immediately is I value freedom in my life. Yeah. Right. Which, to be perfectly honest, would not include me spending 15 to 20 hours a week in a classroom. That is a limitation on my freedom. But I'm exchanging that freedom for monetary benefit. Indeed. Right which allows you to further the project of freedom in other ways. Exactly. I noticed that you had put references in your notes here that we prepared before the show to religion. Yeah. And the first one is the very famous passage from the Bible that, well, it's often quoted that money is the root of all evil. Right. But uh, the correct quotation is that the love of money is the root of all evil. And you had mentioned ethics before as well. So this thing of money, which creates value only when it moves and when it passes hands, right. also seems to create morality. I think this is what you were mentioning before. So the quote from Timothy is, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So you're right to focus on that love. It's, and it's kind of a greed. Greed is good. I'm the most important entity. I want as much as I can, which means you can't have as much. So that creates a deep imbalance in how we're going to make our way through the world. The, the Timothy quote continues, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I think in Timothy's situation in the New Testament, you know, the equivalence that he set up, a dissymmetry maybe, is between money and faith. And you can't mistake the one for the other. In fact, that's kind of a category mistake. The word money comes from uh, the Latin Juno Moneta, which was the Temple of Juno in Rome. So even linguistically, it carries that sense with it. And then there's a lot, you know, Max Weber's famous book about the spirit of capitalism and Protestantism around that basically capitalism takes up where Protestantism left off in terms of having to work for value and, and uh, legitimation. There's this uh, movement between religion's desire for certainty and salvation, and now we've displaced that onto money, so that if I'm really, really rich, I'll be happy, I'll, I'll live a better life after I'm dead, etc. Okay, okay. So this leads to the effective quality of money 
emotional quality of money, which I think is really popular notion in our culture. You know, the Beatles saying, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. Right. There's a ton of research about whether or not money can buy happiness. So what do, what do you think? Does money buy happiness? Or uh, is there something about the magical nature of money related to happiness? You know, the research shows that a certain amount of money is required for sort of our basic needs and in order to create the conditions for happiness. But beyond that, it doesn't really matter. So no, I don't think money can buy happiness because there are two different types of objects. Money is this entity and happiness is a more of an affective thing. But I, I think money is always connected to desire and therefore anxiety. And probably all of us have felt that deep anxiety of not having enough money or that pleasure at getting a, a paycheck where for the day at least we're okay. Right. And so I think money sort of situates us in the world in, in a way that's aligned with our personal histories, with the collective dimensions of society, and certainly with our sort of emotional sense of well-being or not. Mm. So it's tied to our security, and our security may be tied to anxiety or to the ability to be happy. But there's not an open exchange between pieces of paper with numbers on them and the emotion of happiness. There's not a one-to-one -one exchange. I, I think there's a kind of translation that can go on, you know, toward value. But I think that value is also prior to money. There's kind of a different sequencing of these translations between objects like paper or gold or cattle or shells, many different things that served as money historically, mm -hmm. uh, and what we're trying to gain by that, which is always, I think, social preservation and wealth and, and well-being. Money always translates into something else. It's like a people like to talk about it as a pure sign of equivalence. Like, I don't know how to build a house, or I don't know how to even get a pen, but I, I can pay a dollar for a pen. Right. You give this very abstract thing called a dollar bill in exchange for a very concrete thing like a refrigerator or a pen or headphones. Right. Right. That's a very odd, odd thing. The transaction doesn't seem like it's equitable, but money can do that because it's an abstract form mm. for us. I mean, you know, modern money economies, which are different than traditional barter economies or agricultural economies are able to do this and you're able to save your money in a bank and you're able to invest your money. So there's all sorts of things we can do that it of course creates imbalances and inequivalencies and intense suffering. You know, it's more or less by accident where we end up, whether we are intensely suffering because of the effects of money or we're okay or somewhere in the middle. So again, I think it's tied into ethics, which then becomes a question of politics and political economy which, of course, has a lot to do with how money is generated and accepted. And to get back to that point about magic, it's, it's based on this credibility that you and I trust each other enough that if, I, if you have headphones that I want and I'll give you, you know, 100 U.S. dollars for that, then you can give me the headphones. Well, that's just a contract that we've agreed on ahead of time, which more or less nobody ever thinks about. That's right. Absolutely. Price is interesting, right? Because price signals value. Right. Presumably, but, you know, luxury goods, 
and what is value. They're all very complicated notions. Absolutely. How much are you paying for the good itself? How much are you paying for the means of production? And how much are you paying for the symbol of that good and what that communicates to the world around you? Yeah, that's brilliant because I, okay, means of production, that's part of it, right? And that's that whole Marxist thing about labor value. And then the symbol of, of how does it distinguish us from each other and show that I have higher or lower status? So there's a very finely tuned notion of how money provides distinctiveness in a very crowded world. As you know, in Hong Kong, it matters if you have a Maserati or a Ferrari or a Bentley, none of which are useful. That's right. But all Not of at which all. are social distinctions. Pure liabilities, really. Yeah, exactly. But nonetheless, valued enough to be on show. And there's that, that old idea of conspicuous consumption and Pierre Bourdieu's notion of social distinctiveness. So these things always get generated. I recently read an article about business travel and the adverse health effects of business travel from continued jet lag and the sort of emotional cost of distance with one's friends and family. And even for very, very frequent travelers, sort of more than once weekly travelers, the dose of radiation that they receive is exceeding the re recommended maximum allowance of radiation. Yeah. But at the end of the article, they said, most of these effects are mitigated by the fact that these people are all in high paying jobs <laughs> yeah. and can afford good health care and good recreation to recover from that. Yeah, and flying business class too, instead of economy class. Right, so they, they can mitigate those, those concerns of their labor with their cash. Right, and I think it's interesting too in terms of what you just mentioned in, about the concept of distance. Because for us, distance is meaningless in terms of the exchange of money. We send money electronically all the time. It doesn't matter if we ever see each other. It goes to this enormously complex technical system in order to come out as a number on the other side, and then there you go. So what are the different stages of mediation for the exchange of money to happen? And it, of course, it's gotten much, much more complicated with the advent of computers and globalization and things like that. Complicated on the back end. Right. Very simple on the front end. Much simpler on the front end. Yeah, that's true. Because I, I push a few buttons and money appears on my account around the other side of the world. I have no idea how that happens. It's pure magic. <laughs> right. But not really, of course. I'm in Glasgow right now. I can go down to the center of town, punch a few buttons, and take out British pounds yeah. that are physically here in Glasgow that I earned as Hong Kong dollars. And all of this transacts via a phone call, and that distance is, is nothing to money these days. No. Imagine in the world of exchanging gold, the crates of gold I would have to carry across, or cattle, right? I think it's become tremendously simpler on the front end as a user of money. Yeah. Uh, distance no longer matters. Which nation state I reside in or currency matters far less than it used to. Uh, exchange right. of currency is straightforward and easy, electronic even. And also, we've got to imagine that the paper form of money will you know, along with coins, will slowly begin to disappear. But, maybe, you know, that'll take a while. In fact, you know, I was in Zimbabwe 
in, I think it was 2010 or 2011, after the hyperinflation had occurred there. Right. And people would be interested in the hyperinflated paper money, which was no longer in use, as a sort of souvenir of Zimbabwe. Yeah. These guys would exchange for very little real U.S. dollars sacks of old Zimbabwe money, including... A hundred trillion dollar notes, which has 14 zeros on it. It's something to see. That's amazing. But I was asking the people there, well, how much did a hundred trillion dollars buy at that time? And they were saying something like two sacks of groceries. So I was trying to work out from that. What was the price of a sheet of toilet paper? <laughs> and I came up with something like a million dollars. It's not important exactly what it was, but it was clear to me. Very valuable toilet paper. That there were denominations that were worth far less than a sheet of paper at that time. And would be more useful as the paper themselves. I thought that was very interesting because it's possible for that imagined value, that value that occurs in the exchange, to decrease below the value of the good itself. And even for paper money, not just for coins, which historically have held value in the raw material itself or in in electronic stocks or whatever there's i think you're right there's always the possibility that the value decreases below the value of the 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 object itself that's that's so interesting because the value is sliding all the time right right i was thinking about that too because most of the time these days i don't actually exchange a piece of paper or a coin no i exchange bits Right. Computer information is what I exchange and, and receive back, I don't know, toilet paper. Right. But you often give them a piece of plastic. Right. That's enumerated with your specific code. And then that allows you to exchange bits. So, yeah, this is enormously interesting. This move from, from like, say, animals or shells to coins to paper to credit cards to electronics and Bitcoin, which is something I don't understand, but, you know, you can create a new currency, which indicates to me that there's a fundamental social imaginary at work that whatever we decide we'll take from each other, good enough. But the governments still say legal tender, right? That's right. So there's a whole politics of fidelity that the money system is based on. It's not and never has been something like really a gold standard. And then hyperinflation can happen because those constraints go away. Exchanging one currency for another is so mysterious to me. I've never understood how, <laughs> how any of this works. But, you know, in, in 1971, when we moved to floating currencies, that put everything in a kind of relationship to each other and not to this what we took to be a referent gold. Right. Uh, and now, so there's, you know, the, the international exchange currencies and et cetera, and all this trading going on at the margins of those values that make people either rich or destitute or somewhere in between. So I, I think for me, the interesting thing is that it is now established by relationships between each term, the dollar and the euro and the renminbi, instead of the currency to a universal standard like gold. It was never universal, but close enough. So the whole system has shifted. And 
This is part of why Latour wants to get into non-modern networks and other people talk about postmodernism, etc. It's because the system of relationships has shifted. And for me, the you know, the interest in ghost money per se, but the ancient magic and religious affiliations of money, they become a bit more visible now in this new floating currency situation. So when you look at a British pound, do you have any idea what's on the front of a pound? Why is it an artwork and why is it a person? So I have a British pound here. On the front is Elizabeth II, yep. the queen, on what we call the head. And on the back, it looks like some sort of royal seal in the word one pound. And then there's these funny words on the edge. So why a queen? I think the queen must legitimize the money. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And so you see that all over the place, this legitimating function of iconography and art. It's not taken as art. It's taken as pure legitimation. But there's always this artistic space going on as well. A lot of money around the world has people's faces on it. Yep. Often politicians, but sometimes other people like important scientists or literature figures or things like this. We're talking about what we see on the money, and there's a sort of creative quality to that, a design element on what I see on a piece of paper money or on a coin. And then I wondered if there was a relationship between money and artwork. Yeah, I think so. I think that usually the functions are separated, but there's always for for modernism, there's always a market for art. Okay. There are also people that make art, like a guy named J.S.G. Boggs. They make Boggs bills, which is just his face and the Republic of Florida or whatever he's making up. But then he exchanges the art for goods or other types of money. Okay. So the art is functioning as money. Okay. And I just find that very illuminating about how the operations of exchange work. Boggs bills money on art. I'm trying to get some Google images here. I'll put links to this in the show notes for the listeners. Okay, uh, right. So one of them looks much like a $1 bill, but instead of one on the back, it says fun. It's a fun bill. And he changes that for rent or clothes or food because he's trying to find that boundary between money and art and actually the act of exchange. Well, all right, Gray. Professor Gray Kutcher Lindgren is the director of the Common Core Curriculum at Hong Kong University and the author of Night Cafe, published on iCorner. Thanks so much for being on the show, Gray. It's a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for the invitation. The website for Thoughts and Feels is drtimweatherspoon.com slash podcast. There you can find links to people and articles discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to Thoughts and Feels on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, thanks for listening.